Welcome back, everybody, to Radio Ryan Presents Three Ringos, a WCCS podcast. Uh, I am your host, Radio Ryan, here, of course, with my fellow Radio Ringos, uh, Tyler Finney and Harrison Zyberg. Everybody, everybody say your favorite word right now. Three, two, one, go. Soliloquy. uh, All right, cool, cool, cool. (laughs) uh, We're off to a great start. Uh, Welcome back to Three Ringos, our Beatles podcast here on Wheaton College Radio. Um, Last week, we discussed the Beatles' uh, wonderful sixth album, uh, Rubber Soul, that everybody loved. And here today, we are discussing their follow-up, sometimes seen as a bit of a companion piece to Rubber Soul, Revolver. The seventh album, many people have called it the Beatles' best. Some people have referred to it as the greatest album of all time. Harrison called it subpar about five minutes ago. So we're ready to get rolling. Uh, Before we start with Rubber Soul at all, I'd like to check in with uh, your homework, which was to listen to two singles, specifically a single in its B-side. The first was uh, Paul McCartney's Paperback Writer, and its B-side was John Lennon's Rain. We'll start with Paperback Writer. Just jump straight into it without warning. What did you think of Paperback Writer? Good. Good. That's about it. All right, I, moving at kidding. Uh, Tyler, what's up? I would go as far as to call it groovy. I think that uh, it's, it's indicative of the album that it did not make the cut of in, in that it has great guitar riffs, and I think Ringo's drums stand out more than they had, at least to me, previously. And um, I guess to me it also shows that they can sort of take a relatively simple topic and make something interesting out of it, both musically and I guess just like the way they construct a song now. So I, I enjoyed it. Yeah. I like paperback writer a lot. Um, it was written by Paul McCartney, as I mentioned, um, when I think it was his aunt or something was like, Hey, you're always writing about love and all this, write about something normal. And he's like, I made a car song last time. And she's like, no, no, no. But that was kind of about love make something really normal. So he wrote about a paperback writer and it turned out as it did really fun uh, lead guitar part here played by Paul McCartney. Uh, George Harrison kind of fills. I don't know too much about how guitar playing works, but from what I got. So it's six strings and then you go up and down with a From what I got primarily uh, from research was that Paul McCartney basically came up with the uh, lead guitar riff uh, and George Harrison just kind of filled in. Um, the uh, the guitar is really fun. It's a bit reminiscent of Day Tripper. John Lennon called the song Son of Day Tripper, but nevertheless, it is Paul's song and pretty good. Um, and to point to your point about drumming, Tyler, I think this album, maybe in the whole career of the Beatles, might be Ringo's best drumming album. He's so sharp during these sessions I would and agree. I, I really like all his work on paperback writer and on rain which we will get to in a minute i just want harrison did you want to say anything other than that you yeah, it no, was I, good <laughs> i really like the song i know it's like oh it's a it's a paul song not about love so that's pretty unique up to this point in his career um but yeah i thought like they're all they're all singer songwriters obviously paul and john are more so they're all writers and it's just interesting like i don't know a song by writers about writers is sort of just, I like things when that happens. I like when mm. writers talk about writing and it's sort I don't know if it's like a goes to any of his actual personal feelings about writing, but just interesting. I like it. Yeah. Uh, lyrically, I think it's an interesting, funny little story. Um, it, it's one of those fun songs where you can't really tell how much of it is story and how much of it, obviously Paul McCartney doesn't want to be a, book writer because he's a songwriter but he's it's a funny little play on you know he's a writer but he's making a song about i want to make a break as a writer um also like a paperback writer which isn't like i'm not sure if that's supposed to be like a six like something from the 60s or 50s that we just don't think now but that'd be like a dime store just like i have a book in a dollar store type of thing like yeah i think hardcover i think it's it's a a huge ambition right i think it's a phrase more of just like i want to write books like i want to be published i think it might have been more of paperbacks as in like general Mm. uh word for books but who knows Uh, i think it's probably like 
I think it's Ringo's ambition to write romance novels coming through. I would right. read romance. The novels. secret, the secret uh, Ringo romance that we never get to hear too much about. Ringo romance from dairy farmers, but only goat cheese because of the molecule size. <laughs> I'm not going to address that. Uh, moving on to the B side, uh, "Rain." This song is written by John Lennon. Uh, funnily enough, it's about the weather. And um, Ringo himself has called Rain his best drum performance ever. He said he never played as busy as he did on Rain, which is a really English way to say he played really well. But uh, what did you guys think of Rain? For me, it's, uh, it's definitely successful in the vibe that it's going for. I agree about Ringo's drums being like a really prominent backbone here. They stand out, like I said, more than I think they had previously. Um, the whole track just has this very hazy feel to it that no, this isn't a pun, but like the song Rain, it, it literally feels like a song that would just more wash over you than one you can be like, oh, this part especially was whatever. Not that anything was less than good. It's just more that it's meant to sort of wash over you. Um, and it's almost something you'd hear in like a montage or something. So uh, I thought I thought it was pretty neat. I think I was less of a fan of it than Tyler was. I, don't, like I, was, I didn't dislike the song, but and I really liked the drum part. I said it was really strong, but as I say, it wasn't my favorite. I, I wrote the music was like overpowering, which I guess I meant like the vocals weren't, I, I don't know. I think I couldn't pay attention enough to the vocals because just the music was so like blah in your face about stuff. So I wasn't just a huge fan of it. I actually agree with that. I, I do, one thing I will say is that I do wish the vocals were clearer because that's not a problem that I had on the album. But for some reason, I think with this song, the music definitely overpowered the vocals. That might have been intentional just because I, I guess it would contribute to the sort of like weird, hazy feeling. But uh, I did want to hear what they were saying a little bit more. Yeah, the song definitely has this hazy vibe to it, this sort of... Um sort of almost wandering in the rain, fittingly, uh, vibe that uh, John Lennon was trying to capture. Uh, he said it was about people complaining about the weather all the time, and he's sort of like, just let it happen. Um, the song is pretty psychedelic. It's one of their first real psychedelic songs, and it has some backwards vocals on it, which is the first time the Beatles ever tried that. There's some dispute over whether John Lennon or producer George Martin first did it, but regardless of who did it, John Lennon loved it, and there's a, a quote that basically, even if it didn't make it up onto the final cut of the song, every song they did on Revolver, they tried putting backwards stuff on just because they loved it so much. And occasionally George Martin would be like, this is, this is just a ballad. Let's not put any backwards vocals on this. <laughs> but overall, and I think you guys would agree, Paperback Writer and Rain is a strong single package uh, that is uh, at least somewhat indicative of the album to come. Um, but before we get straight into the songs off of Revolver, let's talk a bit about how it came to be. So as I mentioned last week with uh, Rubber Soul, uh, it was an unprecedented period of relaxing for the Beatles. It was one of the few times where they weren't, they didn't have future commitments. Um, and Re Revolver was the same way. Uh, due to a, <laughs> A funny little scheduling thing, the Beatles had three months off, which was an insane amount of time for them, given the fact that during their heavy touring years, they usually had a day off where they weren't doing studio work or on tour. So basically, if you remember the fact that the Beatles were in the films Hard Day's Night and Help, it, Hard Day's Night and Help were not singular films. They were part of a, not a trilogy in the sense of like a narrative, but the fact that the Beatles had signed a three film deal with the, the film company saying, you're gonna make three films for us. Uh, they were supposed to make their third film now in uh, 19, early 1966 after they got back from their huge American tour. And the Beatles said, no, they're like, we're not doing it. We're burned out. We're not doing this movie. And the film production company was like, okay, but you signed a contract, you have to make a third film with us. And their response was, we'll do it later. We'll make a third film later, uh, which they ended up doing. They made a third film, which we will talk about soon. That movie was over the hedge. <laughs> um, it was not. Uh, and so they had a lot of time off for a Revolver. Um, there was a lot of uh, different interests going on. Now that the Beatles were basically done touring. We'll talk about this more next week, 
But after their big American tour and their big tours of 1965, the Beatles never really tour big again. They had some shows in 1966 and some songs off of um, Revolver, I'm thinking mostly of Eleanor Rigby, do get played live. But by the time Revolver is done, the Beatles know that they don't want to be a touring band anymore. They because of what they did with Rubber Soul and Revolver, they fall in love with the studio. They say, we just want to do this anymore. Touring is really hectic and crazy and we don't like it. And it's not fun anymore. Let's just be a studio band and they're the Beatles so they can do it. Um, with Revolver, we're bringing a lot of new stuff to the studio. And by we, I mean the Beatles. I am in no way, shape or form part of that. Um, Wait, you're not connected to the, no. then why are we doing this podcast? <laughs> Ryan, you did a great job with this album. Thank you. Thank you. Um, there's a lot of different interests going in. Now that the Beatles, as I mentioned, are living apart, but still really close, they're bringing in a lot of different interests. Um, most of the band at this point, and by most, I mean everyone but Paul McCartney, has tried LSD and likes it. Uh, and they do acid kind of a lot in this period. This is their psychedelic period, their drug period. Um, Paul McCartney... Uh, still wants to find something new, but doesn't want to try LSD yet. He does eventually. Uh, so he starts looking into the British art scene. He likes a lot of avant-garde art. He brings a lot of that sort of philosophy into the studio. Uh, as I mentioned before, John Lennon really likes the backward vocals and being really experimental and getting more personal with his lyrics. Um, and George Harrison starts to develop a really deep interest in uh, Indian culture, Indian music, uh, Indian spirituality, and that starts to show in his songwriting. Uh, Revolver actually has... Ringo is just there for a good time. <laughs> Ringo, Ringo at this time is, is like sort of becoming like the best drummer he can be. And I think that sort of reveals itself on Revolver and that he really took this time to just be like... Because Ringo is known for being like a song drummer, like he just likes to sit in the song and play the melody and he, he's content with that and he's the best at it. But he was like, I'm going to really make sure that I am doing everything perfectly because Ringo felt like he was sort of a central cog in this Beatles machine and had to do everything perfectly. And so he tried his best and it showed out and he uh, did great on this album. But um, basically everybody's bringing in new ideas and it's not conflicting yet unfortunately that i have to add yet but the beatles during this sort of classic period of rubber soul revolver and sergeant peppers the beatles are at all-time highs in sense of friendship camaraderie working together during revolver i know i just said that uh, paul mccartney does walk out on one session and revolver he's like i'm not playing on the song but nevertheless everybody remembers this and rubber soul very fondly uh, and Paul McCartney was like, yeah, I walked, I got mad and left, but whatever. It wasn't like the super dramatic walkouts that uh, unfortunately are yet to come. Um, and finally, before we get into the album, this album is kind of seen as a transitional album in terms of the Beatles uh, leadership and authority, because up to this point, John Lennon, as we have seen, has kind of been the major songwriter in the group. Paul McCartney, no less in skill, but John Lennon usually has more songs on each album. And we see in 1966 with Revolver and trending on throughout the Beatles' career, Paul McCartney kind of stepping up and becoming more of a leader, not only in the band, but in the studio of saying, oh, I want things to be like this and it, this should be like that. And John Lennon sort of waning off and losing a bit of interest in being the leader. So as those sort of do a little parallel line situation. Um, so we, we see a, a bit of that on this album. It's, some people will call it like Lennon's last great album. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that. He has a lot of good songs left. But this is, this is seen as sort of the transition of Paul and John uh, starting to converge. Sgt. Pepper's is seen as like their great meeting point. And from there on, it's more Paul's band than John's, if you're into that kind of thing. It, it matters less to me, but I think that's interesting to look at. With that being said, do you guys have any thoughts about how Ringo Volver, I, I'm sorry, Revolver was made before we jump into the songs themselves? Um, I'm curious. So how long did this take them to make relative to their other albums? They took, I think, about three months was their time that they uh, used. Basically, the time they were supposed to be shooting the film 
they took to make Revolver. And three months to make an album is kind of crazy by these standards. But in the 60s, you were supposed to be working like every... The, the, the standard was that pop stars were supposed to be working like every day. And like you should always be just recording and pumping out material. For the Beatles to take three months to make an album was actually seen as like a very long amount of time. And it, people thought it was weird that the Beatles were like relaxing. They're like, what are you doing? Get on stage. And every time they went on vacation, people would like follow them. And they're like, hey, we're just, we're like 25. We're just going to hang out for a bit. Get back in the studio. <laughs> this was to like, when they did, I know like after this, they really stopped performing. I guess two questions. One, did they ever announce we're not touring anymore? Or they just not tour? And two, like, they were still only like, their shows, even though it was a grind, they were only like 45 minutes long, right? Like, it was not long shows. The, the, the shows weren't super long, but they couldn't be very long because there were, like, 80,000 people there, and they were like, we can't, like, be here and just listen to them scream for an hour and a half. But, yeah, they were a bit shorter. But the, 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 it was less, like, they were on stage for so long and more, like, they weren't doing anything on stage. They couldn't hear themselves play. They felt like they were just kind of miming their own songs and playing them like very poorly. And they thought they were getting worse as musicians. And also the fact that they were touring so much that the shows were short, but they played so many of them. Uh, and the first point, I don't know if they ever said like, we are done touring, but they kind of said like, we are not booking any more tours going forward. And I think at like every interview from this point on they asked like are you ever gonna tour again and they're always like maybe but probably not um, they, they still made like a stupid question but they, they were making public appearances they didn't just like oh yeah it wasn't, it wasn't like the beatles disappeared and released an album every few months like they're no. still like talking about they became more reclusive um they they uh around this time of revolver they went on their last i'll talk about this more next week for sergeant peppers because because more relevant but uh, they were doing their last tours before uh, Revolver came out, which ended up being like their last tours ever. And this is also around the time that John Lennon in interview says like, oh, the Beatles are more popular than Jesus, kind of like offhandedly, which actually sparks a whole thing in the United States because spoiler alert, we love Jesus. Um, <laughs> Hashtag John Lennon is over party. <laughs> and so uh, that was a whole fiasco. But basically they, they start, they stop. They start doing less public appearances, but they don't cut off. There is a point, though, where, like, the Beatles don't disappear, but, like, between one press conference promoting Revolver, they just look as they normally do, and it's like that John Mulaney joke. The next press conference, they all had mustaches, <laughs> and they were all wearing, like, crazy, like, clothing, and everybody thought it was funny. So that, that John Mulaney joke is rooted in, like, a real thing. Um, okay, so before we get into the songs itself – brief overview of your thoughts on revolver just did you like it did you not like it what did you think of the general premise of the album and the, your general thoughts on it before we jump into the tracks individually general thoughts musically ambitious probably the but the only album since beatles for sale that's the fourth album right yep that does not surpass the album before it mm, interesting I think it's, uh, you know, I understand the opinion that, uh, that Rubber Soul, uh, that Rubber Soul maybe eclipses this album. I actually, I don't agree. I think that this album uh, accomplishes more and tries more. I think not in the sense that it's put forth with more effort, which Rubber Soul didn't have, but I think that it tries to do a lot more different things and succeeds at those things. Uh, I think that the songwriting here is really exceptional in trying to be more abstract without being too alienating. And uh, the tracks here, I think, are just genuinely exciting and how different they feel for the Beatles. So, you know, I think that this is probably their best yet. Great thoughts. Um, from what I got, Tyler really liked it. Harrison, I'm sensing you did like it, but you're sort of not playing devil's advocate, but trying to, to sort of also say that you don't think it's sort of like as wonderful as Tyler is saying. Yeah, I, I don't think it's the Beatles' best album. I definitely don't think it's the greatest album of all time. I think, oh, it's a good album, but I expected more from it. I was like, much more like, okay, this is going to surpass Rubber Soul. And it's just like, oh, it's like... Would you, would, do, just, you, do you put it far below Rubber Soul or like just below it? Um, 
I may have to re-listen to it like definitive, but like on my weird number scale, that's not consistent with anything. I would put like, I don't know, five points below, maybe, maybe three okay. or four. So, so it's not, it's not like 20. It's points not dramatic. Yeah. No. All right. Well, I, I, uh, I'll talk about it more towards the end. I really like revolver. It's probably, I, my top three Beatles albums shifts around in order, but revolver is in there with rubber soul. Um, I flip back and forth over which one I like more at this point in my life. I think I like revolver a bit more, but uh, we will see why everybody seems to like it. Uh, it has one of the coolest album covers. It's for a them. great album cover. If you've never seen it, it's, it's designed by Klaus Bormann, who is like one of the Beatles oldest friends from their Germany days. And he's just like, I think it was based on some magazine and he just sort of drew these crazy things and the Beatles were like, awesome. Cause they're super into weird stuff. Um, and then being on drugs are probably pretty easy right, to impress, right. but luckily it's cool. <laughs> uh, so musically revolver embraces more of the psychedelic. It kind of goes back more into rock than rubber soul, but also totally not at all. Uh, this and rubber soul are really different from the Beatles first five albums which are all sort of in the rock and roll style we saw rubber soul had more of a folkers folky sound it had some country in it it had some uh acoustic sort of uh softer stuff in it revolver is a bit more eclectic it's psychedelic it goes back to electric guitars without necessarily traditional rock we have some elements of indian music here a lot of uh variety here while also sticking to sort of a central beatles sound uh while also sort of evolving what that Beatles sound is. Paul McCartney said something like, we're going to lose some fans with Revolver, but if you don't like Revolver, you only like the Beatles music that we don't really like anymore, and we're going to gain fans from Revolver, and the people who like Revolver the most are sort of more in line with what we're thinking right now. He basically was just saying, like, Revolver is like what the Beatles are right now. So if you like it, that's awesome. If you don't, you don't really like the Beatles right now, which is sort of a a brazen statement and George Harrison said it, it's the best thing we've ever done so far. Uh, so they had high praise for it. Uh, and speaking of George Harrison, he opens the album, which is sort of a nice touch. Uh, George Harrison usually been limited to one or two songs. The album, I believe he has three on revolver, including the opener. It's called tax man. And it's crazy in the sense that it's brazenly political, which is super new for the Beatles who prior to this, their only political like act was becoming like honored by the queen as orders of members of the British empire, whatever that stupid thing is. Um, but George Harrison writes this song about taxes. I'm going to be honest. I don't fully understand the 1966 United Kingdom's economy. Uh, and I'm not asking Bro, anyone shut to. down the podcast. You got to <laughs> do your research. <laughs> but the gist of this song's creation is that the Beatles were being taxed an absurd percentage of their income. I know we're, we're all into eat the rich stuff now, but this was, this was back in the day where the rich were being eaten and they weren't even rich. Uh, the Beatles, they were, they just found out that they were basically making almost all their money from touring and their record sales were being, uh, I can't overstate how much they were being taxed. They're being taxed a lot. So George Harrison wrote Tax Man. What did you guys think of the first song off of Revolver? Look, I want to say I know great music. Like I really like I really love the guitar. I thought the song lyrically was good. Like we're great. Like love the music. There's probably not a song on the album where I'm like, God, the music to this is bad. I think it's all great. But at and I know they're being taxed a lot, but like really your first political song, you're going to be like, oh no, my money's going to for roads. Like I get it, but like, it's just funny when you compare like what's political songs in the UK like at this time. And it's about taxes. And in the US they're like, I don't know, let's talk about Vietnam or like the civil rights movement. So it's just very funny of like, if you compare, I think protest songs, I think there's a reason this one is sort of forgotten. Not that it's not a good song on its own merits, but it's just funny that the first political song they do is like, gosh, sure do wish I had more money. I think, I think that's an entirely valid critique. Uh, I mean, obviously, I think people should advocate for higher taxes against wealthy people, definitely. 
Um, I, I think I just, I'm less affected by it because I, I guess I view this less as a protest song and more of sort of a complaining song. Not in like the most, I don't really mean that in a super critical way. I just mean that more of like, it's just some sort of venting about like, man, because like we've talked a lot in their songs about like the price of fame and like how that's been affecting them. And now this is just sort of them being like, you know what, superficially, like I don't like how much money we're making and I want to make more. And you know what? Like, like I get it. Uh, It'd be like if you wrote a really great song about not wanting to wear seatbelts. It's like I, I wouldn't equivocate those two things. Doing, but I, I just think I don't know how political they were, but I just think their musical talent and minds could have been put towards a better song or better subject material than were being taxed too much. And I know it's like for them it was like astronomically high taxes, but it's just like read the greater political climate. Read the room, Beatles. Yeah, that's valid. For me, I think what stood out most about the track was the musical aspect of it. I think the actual guitar riff in it, the doom, that has such a great immediate punch to it. It's a really great uh, intro to the world of the album for me, and it really gives so much energy to the whole thing that, like, even if you're not always following along with like the message uh i think that it, it it gives it a little bit of that oomph that like really helps sell what they're saying so um i think i think there's really uh enough here to consider it a really good song i just think it's a it's just a it's a groovy one yeah uh a couple points i want to make I, I agree with i think what you both are saying that the song is good uh and has some interesting lyrics uh musically i think it's really interesting to open the album you have that sort of weird count in just one two three and it's very different than anything you've heard on a beatles album so it's already sort of setting the tone that this album is going to be different um there's also uh a lot of great guitar work uh by george harrison on Taxman. And I really like his voice on this. You can kind of sound, you can kind of hear how pissed he is when he's making this song. Uh, and a couple points about the lyrics. Um, so the, the first one is that um, George Harrison was really upset over how much the Beatles are being taxed. He was also really upset that most of their tax money was going to weapons manufacturing. And he's like, I don't, I don't want that. So I don't take it. Um, and, uh, the um, the other thing about the lyrics is it, it is sort of an amalgam of what you two were saying is that it's their first political song, but it isn't really a political stance. It's kind of just like, I want my money back. And it was a lot of critics see this as like the first step into making songs that have more of a message like all you need is love or blackbird or revolution. Um, and that this was their sort of their first idea of like, oh, hey, we could make songs about what's going on and how we feel about it, even if our first attempt was a little more juvenile than that. Not saying that Taxman is bad at all. I think it's a really, really good song. Uh, but lyrically, I, I can understand some of the criticism. Other than that, I think it's a really, really fun song musically. Uh, great solo by George Harrison. And um, I really like it. That's a great point that you made about it being sort of like the first sort of dipping their toe into the waters of, of much more, I think, uh, weighty subject matter later on. I also, I read something really interesting about this and I have no idea if it's true because people online don't seem to know. But some people think that in this song, in the chorus of Tax Man, they may have reinterpolated the theme from Batman, the TV show, but <laughs> no, 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 Batman, which was also really popular at the time. And it sounds like almost identical to it. So it's, that, it's worth thinking about. That's, that is a funny point. I, I wonder if they did that. Uh, it would, I do like the idea of George Harrison sitting down and watching the, <laughs> uh, the Adam West Batman show. Also, if the Libertarians ever needed a new song, Taxman, like seatbelt, same number of syllables. I know that's your arch enemy. Seatbelt. So <laughs> yeah, you got you to gotta vote for the Libertarian crowd. All right, so moving on from Taxman, we have the second song on the album, which is arguably its most famous cut. This is Paul McCartney's Eleanor Rigby, very, very famous song um, by the Beatles about loneliness. It was written by Paul McCartney. This is one of the songs that has the most 
people claiming they wrote this song. Paul McCartney says, like, I wrote most of it. John, help me. That's how we write all our songs. A couple people um, contributed. Uh, John, John Lennon said that he wrote a good half of the lyrics and then later said he wrote everything but the first verse. Some people say John Lennon contributed nothing. Paul McCartney remembers John Lennon helped him with a few words. Uh, George Harrison and Ringo both remember contributing at least one line each. And pretty much everybody who was friends with Paul McCartney remembers contributing to this song. To me, it seems most likely that Paul McCartney wrote the song with some help from the other Beatles and maybe some friends, but that it is primarily his creation. Um, it's a song, as I said, about loneliness. Uh, Paul McCartney's talked about it a lot in interviews because it's one of his most famous songs. There's a couple famous things like uh, there's a gravestone in Liverpool near where John and Paul first met that has the name Eleanor Rigby on it. Like before, you know, she died in like the 30s or something. So people are like, whoa. Uh, there's um, uh, uh, the Father McKenzie character was really called Father McCartney. But then Paul McCartney was like, oh, people would think that's my dad. And that always boggles my mind that how is the name Father McCartney not immediately associated? How can you write that and not immediately think of your own father? But anyways, that's just my little point about it. Uh, I'll stop talking too much about Eleanor Rigby. Everybody knows it, but I want to hear how you guys feel about it. You're really coming out with that Paul attack, Ryan. It's like so vicious, like... I think you need a five-minute break. Pause there are only the four Beatles. You got to be nice to at least three of them. Anyway, obviously, like, I don't know. It's like, what what to say about, like, one of the most famous songs of all time? Like, it's about, I don't know, the fact that it's about loneliness. That's not really a subject they've talked about a lot, at least not. John's songs have a little bit. Paul hasn't really touched on it yet. But also, like, in John's songs, it's almost always about, like, his loneliness where Paul created like a story of someone else. So maybe, maybe that is like reflecting how he feels in some certain way about whatever, just being lonely. But it's just interesting how he did it, where it's like Paul or John's songs are more, you can really tell they're looking at him. And then Paul was like, I'm just going to make the story about it. And maybe that is reflecting him some way, but in a different way than John does. Yeah, honestly, like if I even sort of met like, Ringo at a wedding once like I would probably claim ownership of this song too because it's that good I, I I don't blame them for all saying that they wrote some part of it um it's really just like a masterpiece it, it like the strings here are such a they're like the perfect accompaniment to uh the story that's being told I love how it embraces the storytelling aspect because that was one of my favorite aspects of Rubber Soul too seeing more of those types of tracks and here, what's interesting is that since it's about loneliness uh, ostensibly, it could easily be pared down with like a more subtle backing of like a guitar or uh, some sort of piano thing, which I think it would still be an amazing song, but the strings really gives it this cinematic feel to it that, that brings it to a whole nother level. Um, it's, yeah, it's, it's, one of the, it's one of the best at this point in their careers easily. It's like their first song, like, I don't know what British counterculture is like at this time, but in America, it was in full swing of, like, the 60s and into the 70s. And you can sort of tell, what's the, um, I can't, for some reason, I cannot think of the actual line, but it's basically, like, there's, like, see, there's a chorus or just some specific lines where they're just sort of questioning, like, the basic premise of, like, normal things you do in everyday life. And just being like, well, that doesn't make any sense. That's stupid. Like, we shouldn't, like, this is just ridiculous. And this is sort of, like, their first actual dip into the counterculture, where it's like, I mean, Taxman, great song musically, but it's not a very like, we're here in political song. It's more like, I want more money. Whereas like, this is sort of, in some ways, like first going into the counterculture. And probably, I think this sets the tone more vibe-wise than Taxman does. I think that uh, that's a good point at the end there about setting tone. Th this and Taxman together as the two opening songs are kind of shocking and how negative they are in terms of Beatles albums. This is probably the most negative Beatles album since Beatles for Sale and since that you open up, we haven't heard a love song in two tracks. Uh, what the heck? And we're not actually not going to hear one for a while. But um, 
by Once Wild. Once going to start holding her hand. Two songs, but um, I love this song. Obviously, everybody loves Eleanor Rigby. It's a really bold choice to go with musically that none of the Beatles play on the song. There's no Beatles playing in the song. They have obviously their super intricate, beautiful harmonies for the chorus, all of them. Um, everybody involved, Paul, John, and George, all said that they had a lot of fun all doing the harmonies together. And I think lyrically, it's one of the Beatles' best songs. It's one of those songs that you actually makes you think. Not like some, they're like, this one really makes you think. But like this song actually makes you think about things. Like, like some of my favorite lines and like the ones that always get to me are when it almost sounds like Paul is the one observing these situations. Like when he says something like, um, she keeps a face in the jar by the door, which is a really fun line. Just that, and then he says like, "Who is it for?" And then we don't like get the answer. He's just like, "Oh," and it, it's one of for me. This song is like an an embodiment of that feeling when you're in the car or walking down the street and you see somebody and you get that brief like thought of like this person is living an entire full life as vivid as mine, and I will never know what it is. And this song is like, I feel like one of the only things that ever captures that feeling uh, or, or when it's the same thing of like the, the, the preacher or the priest or whatever, darning his socks. I have no idea what darning is, but he's, um, he's darning and they, he's like, what does he care? Like, why is he doing it? Like, nobody's going to be there, you know, to see, um, Believe it or not, there's a word for that feeling you described. Of, uh, it's called sonder. The realization that each random passerby is living a life as vivid and complex as your own. Yeah. The, yeah. This song is very sonderful. It, there, there's that, <laughs> the, the line in the chorus is like, where do all the lonely pe people come from? Like, like, how do you become somebody that just lives on? Like, sometimes you'll pass by and you'll just see somebody like alone, like living in alone or doing something and you're like how did they get there like what does that and this this i think is a very beautiful song for that reason yeah it's almost them like not to sound cliche or whatever but to me at least it's like them looking inward by looking outward by seeing the lives of these people who may or may not exist but the point is that they're outside they're the bubble of the beatles um there may just be any sort of person you gain a sort of better sense of what it means to be a person because you're seeing all these people go through these things and you gain a new perspective of it I think we have to rename the podcast now instead of Three Ringos, Three Sondos. Sond <laughs> I think that works. The, Sonderers is too long. The last point I'll make about this song, and it's to what Tyler just said about the sort of Beatle bubble, is there was oh, a. Not about Three Sondos? No, I'm not acknowledging that. But there was an interview with George Harrison in I think like the 80s or 90s. He said something like, People always asked me that like what was it like to be in the Beatles and I always felt like asking what is it like not being in the Beatles because I don't know anything other than that and so it's a really really interesting thought especially when you consider how young they were when they started being the Beatles like it's like think about it. like if you it's basically your entire life from high school or late high school or whatever to the rest of your life you are a Beatle I mean granted you're who yeah. you are but you, you are a Beatle forever I, I've thought about that before that like Paul McCartney is almost 80. He was in the Beatles for about eight or nine years, less than 10% of his life. He was, a, he was in the Beatles, but that is forever who he will be, which sort of speaks to their impact. Wait, is Paul McCartney from wings, the same Paul McCartney? From the Beatles? <laughs> uh, yes, he is. I always thought they were both really oh, good. The recording. I need a, I need a minute. <laughs> okay. With that being said, everybody obviously loves Eleanor Rigby. We come to one of our most personally contentious songs. Uh, Harrison said that he did not like this song, and I almost cried because this is this might be my favorite song on the album. Um, this is track three, John Lennon's I'm Only Sleeping. This song to me is about a lot of things. I forget. We'll get to it, I think, in this episode. But there are multiple times where... Paul McCartney remembers writing songs or writing half a song at John Lennon's house while John was sleeping. He like came there and just was like waiting for John to wake up. Like he's like, oh, come by my house at 10. Paul shows up at 10. John is still asleep. And he's like, okay, I'll sit down and get started. Um, so I'm Only Sleeping is kind of about John Lennon being lazy. It's about acid. It's about a lot of things. I, I won't spoil what I think about it, but 
I want to hear what you think about I'm Only Sleeping before I get into it. I loved the hell out of this song. I am in complete agreement with Ryan. Uh, I had never heard it before, and it was so completely my thing. Um, I loved the vocals on it. There was like, they, they almost seemed a little bit, at least to me, more a little more high pitch and almost a little sort of like slurred or dreary, which makes sense with sort of like the sleepy theme of it. Um, the guitar of the guitar had like this almost immediate cinematic feeling to me, like an Eleanor Riggi, but then it being played backwards audibly, like maybe say like, wow, I, I can't believe I'd never heard this before. Um, the whole track is this almost very trippy and almost eerie feeling to it in a good way. Like it, I could totally picture this being played at the end of some like serial killer drama or something, not because of anything lyrically or what it's even that necessarily the intention, but there's something a little dreamlike and unsettling about it that I think is just so like weirdly addicting. The melodies here are super nice instrumentally. This is just such a fascinating song. And uh, it was, it, it was a great foreshadowing for the rest of the album for me because Every time I thought I had a handle on what this song was, it would do something that kind of made me step back and, and realize this wasn't what I thought it was. So I, I loved the hell out of this track. Great track. You see, I was the opposite. I think I just listened. I, my note was literally there must have been a lot of drugs when they made this. And I just think it's assume I like the music, like the instrumental to it. I thought that was probably never bad in any song. So like, I'm not gonna really comment on that unless I found it really good or different for some reason. But it just seemed like messy and was it literally about sleep? Like I just couldn't, either I just didn't get it or just like, eh. And I just didn't like the vocals on it. I just thought like, yeah, I just couldn't get behind it. Yeah. Well, I'll talk a bit about what I like about the song. Um, I think it's really interesting musically. The guitar is great. You have that like really cool, it's like a, it's backwards, but that like kind of forwards, backwards guitar George is playing is really intricate and interesting. And I do think it, this whole album sort of has that feel like Tyler was saying of just being different and kind of strange. And even Eleanor Rigby, which is like a beautiful song is very haunting. It's melancholy. It's all strings when there's no Beatles song. So the whole album feels like this part in the pun but revolving sort of song order that everything is different and weird it almost feels like you're at a show um i'm only sleeping i think might be my favorite song on the album just because of that guitar work because of i love the vocals on this like tyler was saying they're pitched up a little bit he does sound like he's sleeping which is really funny um and i really just love the flow of his lyrics um and i like especially in I think it's the bridge or I don't know how song structure works, but there's a part where it's like the world going by my window and you can hear Paul saying the same thing and he goes up enough that you can hear him above John and it's really cool. I think lyrically it's a very interesting song in the sense that you can take it as just, I like sleeping, leave me. And people have said that John was very lazy physically. Like he, he was always like down to talk to people, but like he never liked exercising or like, walking around like he was very he slept a lot paul always had to like wake him up for their things and to me while the lyrics kind of only talk about that based on the music and the way he's talking about sleeping it almost sounds like my life is better when i'm asleep or or something drug related of like when i'm sleeping or when i'm you know high or whatever you want to interpret it as he's like I'm experiencing something better than whatever you want to wake me up to do. So just leave me alone. Like I feel better. Like it, you could take it as depressing as like, I only like to sleep. You could see it as sort of like a higher mind thing of like, I'm doing something totally different in my brain and I don't want you to wake me up. Or you could just take it as like, I'm sleeping, leave me alone. And I, I just, I love the mood of this track. It, it sounds like, he's literally falling asleep as he's playing it. And I know that sounds like it would be lazy or boring, but I think it's, it's less that he's falling, but it almost sounds like he's dreaming as he sings it. It's that Winnie the Pooh meme where he's floating out of his body. I kind of see him playing guitar and like slowly nodding off while his like unconscious self lifts up and keep playing. So I, I really, really like the vibe of this song. One thing I also want to mention that you just made me realize is that this is yet another example right after Eleanor Rigby of 
the Beatles writing a song from the perspective or at least examining the world of somebody else specifically because uh, Eleanor Rigman is obviously about the story of, of somebody else who may or may not exist, but this is about John and his connection to sleep. So it's, it's so cool that Paul could just see John going to sleep. It's like, man, I wonder what that's like for John to just not want to get up. I'm going to make something kind of surreal about what, what it's like to be like that without asking John, I'm just going to do what I imagine that to be. Sorry, my controls were wrong. Uh, yeah, so it's John's song. So John was was the one writing it uh, lyrically and musically. Mm. But I, I do think that point about like Paul contribute. It must have been interesting for Paul to be on the song, knowing that he's always there to wake. There, there's something interesting there that I, I can't make the full connection right now. But there's something interesting about Paul always being the one to wake John up. And then John writing a song about sleeping and how that connects to musical style. I don't know. It's, it's, it's interesting, I think. The fourth song on the album is Love You Too, um, which is uh, by George Harrison. It is sort of his first uh, Indian-influenced composition because um, he played sitar a bit on Rubber Soul, but that wasn't on his own songs. This is his first one where he really wants to try and make this sort of Indian classical style music. Um, I think a lot of George's songs that are in this style get ignored a lot on listens to albums. I ignored them a lot when I first listened to the album. And listening back again, it's still not my favorite, but there you can get a lot of insight into not only sort of Indian philosophy and Indian music, but George's understanding of Indian philosophy and Indian music and how that has uh, connected to him as a person because while a lot of people see um, John is like the most personal Beatle in his writing I think you and George is one of the least personal Beatles in the sense that he's not very public I think you can actually learn a lot about George through his music and I think Love You Too is one of those songs uh, I'm not asking you to tell me about George I just want you to tell me uh, about the song and what you thought I guess I wasn't a huge, the most interesting thing I thought of about this song, and besides, I thought the star was great, it carried the song, but that it's love you too, T-O, not T-O-O, which means something, because like, it's not I love you also, it's like I love you too, which is like a geographic location, which is an interesting thing. I don't know if that's intentional at all, but if it is, that's just, I don't know, it may be something. But yeah, I just felt like vocally and lyrically it wasn't great. The lyrics had its moments, but the sitar carries it, the music carries it. Yeah, this was very, very jarring for me. I like I really do admire how much this album was willing to throw me for a curve. Um, especially with a group as like well known beloved as the Beatles, because the first thing I wrote down was, oh, wow, immediate sitar. Because I think the last time I heard it, unless I'm wrong, was uh, Norwegian Wood on Rubber Soul. Um, so I wasn't expecting them an album later to just have like a full song of it, which was really interesting to me. Um, Big Departure, it was something very new. I found it very jarring. But ultimately, I thought, I thought it was good. Like Harrison said, I think the sitar was played really well. It really helped me appreciate like what a cool instrument it is. It can add a lot once you use it in a specific way. And um, the lyrics, looking back on it, were more interesting than I think I initially gave credit for, just because for me, they sort of blended in a little bit, um, and I was more focused on the music of it. But like, a lifetime is so short, a new one can't be bought, but what you've got means such a lot to me. Love me while you can before I'm a dead old man. So like, him talking these sort of like abstract philosophical platitudes for me, I think does fit with sort of the willingness to try something new musically. So just as they try something new lyrically, they try something new musically. So I thought that it was a coherent track. Definitely not my favorite on here, but I understand why it's on there. Yeah, I think the only point I really have about the lyrics is that the Beatles largely outside of Paul have moved away from traditional love songs. And that this is an interesting insight as to what George Harrison thinks of love as now. Of we, we saw on Rubber Soul, and I think even a bit on Help, the Beatles are starting to expand their worldview of love from personal relationships to sort of a greater concept love of like a, a unifying love that is shared between a ton of people. 
and Love You Too has that really interesting dynamic that George has on a lot of his songs that can be read as a personal love, like, oh, I love you, and also as like a how we all should think about and use love. So some really interesting interpretations lyrically. I kind of agree with what everyone's been saying. I think my main point of the song is it's good, but everything good about this song, I think George has done better on different Beatles songs. I think there's lyrically and musically, there are similar songs to this that George does better, but you can tell it's one of his first forays into this Indian style of music. And I think it goes off very well, especially for an audience in Britain and America who know nothing about this music. Uh, I think it's an interesting introduction. The next song on the album um, is my favorite. Um, and it's one of my favorite Beatles songs ever. It's called Here, There, and Everywhere. Um, it's a love song. It's probably, it's one of the most simple songs in the Beatles career, not even on the uh, album in, in terms of lyrics, or it isn't. It depends on how you look at it with a lot of the Beatles songs uh, of this era. It, there's a lot of interpretation, but Here, There, and Everywhere is pretty minimal. Um, it's mostly just vocals with some light guitar and uh, drums in the background and some finger snapping. Um, and I think it's, I think it's beautiful. Uh, the, the one point I'll make, because I know Tyler will tell me if I don't tell you, is that basically um, the Beatles made Rubber Soul and the Beach Boys listened to it and thought, oh, that was fun. Uh, and by the Beach Boys, I mean Brian Wilson. And they made uh, Pet Sounds, sort of influenced, not fully, but somewhat influenced on Rubber Soul. Paul McCartney and John Lennon went to a private, like, pre-release listening party with Brian Wilson for Pet Sounds. Uh, Paul McCartney loved the album, loved their song, God Only Knows, like their most famous song. Paul McCartney said, I think to this day, that that's his favorite song of all time, God Only Knows. And so he wanted to replicate, not the song itself, but just sort of the harmonies the Beach Boys are known for, especially on that song, with this song. Uh, so it's kind of cool that it's influenced on the Beach Boys music, and that specific music was influenced by songs Paul McCartney wrote like a year or two ago. Uh, so what did you guys think of Here, There, and Everywhere? I, I liked it a lot, but you said like the lyrics were, it seemed like a much better version of songs that would be on earlier albums that they had, I guess maybe like thematically wise. But then I didn't really understand the lyrics of it. And it's not like I was like, oh, I'm so confused. It was just like, I wrote down, like, is this about, like, I just couldn't tell what it was actually about. Because I think from the lyrics, they were sort of like, oh, some of this has, like, very possessive vibes to, like, some of the things when he's talking about love. But also, like, is this just about, like, Jane Asher? Because it's, it's just, I just really couldn't tell what it was about, which is interesting because as much as I love Paul, also, just a lot of Paul's songs, at least on this album, and the one Rubber Soul tend to be very his voice focused and sometimes instrumentally minimalistic, which is sort of a recurring thing. Where I think he's probably one of the only Beatles that will just have like him on a song, whereas like it seems recurring. But I just like it, it was a love song where I couldn't really get the full message, and it's not not and that's not like a bad thing on the song. It's just like I think it's more complex lyrics than any love song that they've had on any previous album. Uh, Ryan was right in mentioning that I would love to mention the, the Beach Boys thing. So I'm, I, I just got to reiterate like how cool, because literally I, I was not aware of the connection between this specific song and the Beach Boys. But as soon as I heard it, the backing vocals, I was like, I hear Brian Wilson. And being able to, to read that was so cool because uh, the Beach Boys are like a really important group for me. So I thought this was a gorgeous song, uh, beautiful backing harmonies. I thought the central melody here made this song feel so delicate and intimate. I think this really, this takes the basic backbone of what they were previously doing, but it really gives it um, an intimacy and uh, specificness, spec specificity in what it's doing that uh, makes it feel in line with this album. I love the fact that even though instrumentally, you like you said, it's a lot more stripped down and minimal, 
but it still fits perfectly within the album. You pair it right in between Love You Too and then Yellow Submarine is right after this. Those are two songs that have a lot going on musically. So they, I think they were completely right in their instinct to slide it right here. Um, it, it's a perfect reflection of their sort of refined uh, understanding of how to write about love because earlier I think they would have just written like I love you and you're the best and let's have fun but this is more like I love that hand through your hair and I think that uh, I enjoy it's, it's more articulating why they want to spend time with somebody but they do it in a way that reflects their sort of maturing age and maturing understanding of how to do it musically I don't think this song needed a lot going on instrumentally I think stripping it down as much as they did uh, really lent even more emotion to it. I thought this was a wonderful song. Yeah. Um, briefly, I'll talk a bit about the background of the song. Um, Paul, it was, this is the song I was referring to earlier that Paul McCartney wrote this while John Lennon was sleeping. He showed up to write a song and he was like, oh, I'll just write it. And he had pretty much written the whole thing when he made it. John Lennon loved the song. And um, Paul McCartney would later like recall that like John Lennon was not the type of person that like complimented you. He just sort of like showed you that he liked you through like his actions or whatever. But he said this was one of the only songs John Lennon said like this is really good. And he said it was the best song in the album. And in 1980, the year he died, in a Playboy interview, they were just talking about Beatles songs. And Paul McCartney said, or sorry, John Lennon said Here, There, and Everywhere was one of his favorite Beatles songs, which is high praise because it's not his song and he doesn't do that a lot. Uh, Paul McCartney has called it his favorite Beatles song. He really likes it, and uh, a lot of people have great things to say about it. I think um, it's a great song. I love it. Uh, I think it's a really interesting love song. If you, I would encourage you to look at the lyrics because there's something really interesting going on in terms of like storytelling it's like about paul like it's clearly like a, a love song that like paul has personal connection to but like there, there's these moments where he'll say here and then he'll tell something there and it almost sounds like he's like thinking about specific moment and i think like what tyler was saying it's like it, it's thinking about little moments and then also thinking about grand concepts like knowing that love is to share uh hoping i'm always there uh I need love everywhere. There, there's that first line about like to lead a better life. I need her there, which is a very mature concept of like, I'm a better person because of this love, which is, I think a lot of the lyrics make this um, into like a really beautiful love song, sort of reminiscing on little moments while also thinking big term. And I think that is sort of masterful writing, able to connect the two. And so, I also, what go on Harrison? I was going to say, so was one of the actual lines like, forget i listened to the song a while ago it was like i need love everywhere um he says but to love her is to need her everywhere i was just like i guess with any love song written by a beetle during this period like it's well known that they were not faithful partners yeah so i think you for me it's always a little bit thinking about like well i wonder like how much of the love songs they write are like some way apologies to the people they're in relationships mm. with and sort of like, look, I know there's all these other women, but you're the one I'm like, I don't know, sort of like, I know I'm not great to you, but you're the one I've. That's I'm an interesting. With. And interesting. Like, I think that's, I think it's probably at least in the back, maybe not explicitly, probably in the back of every love song they write. I think that's an interesting point. I, I don't know necessarily if I agree in the sense that I see it more as like, even if he's not living his words out, I see it more as like an ideal of like, this is what things should be like, even if maybe they're not like that. I don't know if I would say apology, but maybe more like he is probably playing it up. Like there, there's no way anybody, you know, especially like Paul McCartney can live out everything he's saying. But I think part of like the beauty of it, like he says the last lines, like I will be here, there and everywhere. So I kind of do see there is that sort of strive to be better or different. Uh, so I, I definitely think your idea has basis. Also, um, one cool thing about the legacy of this song that I would love to mention is that uh, this song, uh, actually a small portion of the lyrics of this song were reinterpolated by Frank Ocean in his song White Ferrari, because there's a part where he sings, uh, spending each day of the year, uh, honest, and then it goes to the rest of the song. And it's like, the melody is is doesn't, 
it's not really the same as the rest of that Frank Ocean song, but yet it slides into it so perfectly. It just shows a little bit of how influential songs like these can be in the coolest ways. Did yeah, you that, say reinterpolated? Yeah, so it wasn't directly sampled, meaning like they didn't take the actual audio of the song. No, but is, is reinterpolated a word? I'm pretty sure that it is. I think yeah. it's reinterpreted. No, those are, well, those aren't quite well, the same. Well, in, interpolated is a word. We okay, can, so then interpolate. This, is, this We can go over this in our Sideshow Grammar podcast, but okay, it, it was just a question. We don't need All to right. have the answer now. <laughs> okay, um, moving on. I, I don't know if that got lost in there, but I, I really like that song, and it sounds like the others do too. We then have Yellow Submarine. Hey folks, Radio Ryan here in the editing booth, just letting you know that this is the end of part one of our Revolver uh, discussion. We had to break it down into two parts just for file uh, transfer issues, but uh, these should be uploaded at the same time. So this is your sort of flip the disc message to go over to the second half of the Revolver discussion, uh, which you should find right above or below this one on Spotify. Uh, but this is technically the break between episodes. Um, enjoy the uh, the next part, but this one's over. So, thanks.